0: You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Okay, so we are back and we did what, 93 and 94? Yes. For this issue. All right, so that means I get to go first, which is somewhat of a new experience. And I had more current affairs than I actually probably had big news coming out of the Key Magazine. So I organized my current affairs for 1893 uh, by topic because I was so interested in everything that was going on in this year. We'll start with some GLO news, some Greek letter organization news. And this one is local to you, Dr. Oz, there in Monmouth. Alpha Z Delta sorority is founded at Lombard College in Uh, Gilbert, Illinois. And Lombard is no longer in existence.
1: Lombard is no longer in existence. I can't remember the exact year that it um, closed. I want to say it was in the 20s, but mm-hmm. Ada Mariner attended Lombard for a brief. Okay. Actually, she graduated from Lombard. She transferred from Monmouth to Lombard. It's uh, a you know, universal I mean, it was a universalist school.
0: Well, and I always thought that we had a chapter at Lombard, but we did not. Um, we had a couple in and around that area, like St. Mary's Beta chapter was at St. Mary's. Um, That's the GLO history. Uh, In religion, I know you're not always supposed to talk about religion, but that's one of my favorite topics. And these are tidbits of news that come out of where I grew up. So 1893 was the year of news for religious movements that came out of Western New York, the burned over district. And that's where religious revivals took place in the early 19th century. The Mormon Church started there, and in 1893, the iconic Salt Lake Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is dedicated after 40 years of construction, so started in upstate New York took the big trek out to Salt Lake, uh, started their temple. And then after 40 years, they dedicated it in 1893. And then also in 1893, Maggie Fox died. I don't know if the name is familiar to you, but she was one of the famous Fox sisters and they were founders of the spiritualist movement. And despite their confessions that it was a hoax, (laughs) the movement grew and it's still active today. And I assume that they might be of at least a little interest to you because of Arthur Conan Doyle's writings about them. Yes. Um, I'm I'm interested in them because they lived near where I grew up in Rochester and because they started an interesting, what some would call a fringe religious movement. So Uh, then in pop culture, Edison, Thomas Edison finishes construction of his first motion picture studio in West Orange, New Jersey. The World's Fair, which we will talk about a little bit later, that opened to the public in Chicago, Illinois, also known as the World's Columbian Exposition. Uh, Lizzie Borden is acquitted of murdering her parents in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1892, and that spilled over into, into 93. Um, This was interesting American sisters, Patty Hill and Mildred Hill copyrighted their book song stories for the kindergarten, including good morning to all the melody by Mildred Hall is later adapted without authorization, of course, uh, by Robert Coleman as good morning to you and the second stanza contains the words to do you know what song. No, means the words to "Happy Birthday to You." Oh, okay. That leads to a successful copyright lawsuit by the Hill sisters in 1934. And then one of your unicorns, Arthur Conan Doyle's story, "The Adventure of the Final Problem," was published in 1893, and that revealed that your favorite fella, Sherlock Holmes, had apparently died at the Reichenbach Falls on May 4th,
1: 1891.
0: But, but if- he didn't really die, right?
1: He didn't really die. No. Spoiler alert, if you don't know this already. No, he really was only, this is like the great hiatus. So if you're Sherlockian, that's a term that you should know. But so he, do, he doesn't come back until three years later, but that was because he was um, on the run from Professor Moriarty's henchman, like Colonel, Colonel Sebastian Moran. And so then you know he reappears three years later only his brother Mycroft knew he was alive but he did um, travel the world he went to Tibet and Norway and some other places um, but yeah.
0: So in order to get a great hiatus you have to be chased by henchmen and murderers because I (laughs) want a three-year hiatus where I can travel to Tibet and Norway and all those cool places.
1: No (laughs) no I don't think I don't think that's you need to go to that extreme. I think, you know, we can probably look into sabbaticals. <laughs> um, also in
0: 1893, the American pharmacist Caleb Bradham invents the recipe for what would later become Pepsi. He originally sold it as Brad's drink at his pharmacy in New Bern, North Carolina. And then two of the most fascinating women in the United States, at least to me, Mae West and Dorothy Parker. Um, Mae West, the writer, actress, sex symbol, and Dorothy Parker, the humorist um, and writer, are both born in 1893. In politics, Grover Cleveland is sworn in as the 24th president of the United States. And as you mentioned previously, later that year, he is operated on In Secret. So we still know that the medical issues of a president are of interest to the country. And so that was a big deal that he was operated on in secret. The Anti-Saloon League is incorporated originally as a state organization in Oberlin, Ohio. Sadly, settlers make a land run for prime land in the Cherokee strip in Oklahoma. So that land run was the largest. The 1889 land rush was the most prominent. So that's the one that everyone thinks about. Uh, And then the last land run would be in 1895, closing the door on those original Native American lands. New Zealand became the first country in the world to grant women the right to vote. Sadly, it would be another 27 years before the U.S. would do the same. And then on my birthday in 1893, December 8th, the United States or in the United States, the National Education Association released the final report from the Committee of Ten at a conference at Columbia. And they recommended the standardization of the high school curriculum. Mao Zedong, the Chinese leader was born in 1893 and Rutherford B. Hayes died in 1893. We know his wife is an honorary Kappa. And interestingly, that same year, Edwin Booth died as well. You'll know Edwin's name is one of the most famous actors in America. He was the older brother of John Wilkes Booth, which P.S. Edwin was a unionist and he disowned his brother, the Confederate after Lincoln's assassination. But Edwin Booth was also known for saving the life of Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln. Sometime in 1864 or 1865, Robert Todd Lincoln fell between a moving train and the platform in Jersey City, New Jersey. And a man grabbed him by the collar, pulled him up and saved his life. And Robert Todd Lincoln knew that it was Edwin Booth because he was one of the most famous actors in the world. And so in recounting this story to a friend, that friend then wrote back to Edwin Booth. And Edwin Booth never knew that he had saved the life of Robert Todd Lincoln. And it is said that he felt a little bit, it made him feel good, I guess, at least, that in the wake of his brother's horrible crime, he could at least... Give back,
1: make amends.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure that makes amends, but anyway, saving the life of Abraham Lincoln's son was something that then he was at least pleased he could do. So, the first issue, January 1893, opens with a discussion of the women of at certain universities. So, they apparently put out a call to the different chapters to ask them to describe what is the status on your campus and what is it like. I was especially interested in the piece on page two that describes physical culture at Sage College at Cornell University. It's written by Psy chapter member Amy Garrick, and she promotes the idea that physical education is as important as any other field of study, which is is good. That's a, a good thesis to put forward. What I was troubled by, however, is the perpetuation of the ideas that were promoted by Dr. Edward Clark in his book, Sex and Education. Garrick writes that, quote, everyone knows that the greater use of one set of organs of the body, the greater the circulation towards that part, and the consequent less effective action of the other organs. One cannot develop one portion without developing all. It must be even. The training of the body and mind must go hand in hand." So I appreciate her point. She's advocating for physical education. That's an arena that women have been left out of for far too long. But it's frustrating that she's likely forced to use those quack conclusions that Clark used all those years ago to argue why women shouldn't pursue academics. His argument was that if they are using their brains so much that all the blood flows there, they'll, they'll lose their their whole purpose of serving as a woman and their womanly functions of having babies essentially will will no longer be. (laughs) So I I like her argument, but I'm disappointed uh, that she has to fall on that. On page 10, Mabel Pelton is a Phi chapter alumna from Boston and she writes about an effort in that area in Boston to take programs and talks to women outside of the city sort of a, they called it an intercollegiate extension program, which is amazing. I've always wondered why the Boston Alumni Association is called the Boston Intercollegiate Alumni Association. And I'm guessing because in 1892, that convention voted to allow um, alumni associations to have an official role they probably organized their group right around the same time. So that's interesting to me that they're sort of coinciding. And it talks about adding purpose to membership once one leaves college. And then just after that on page 13, the Chicago Alumna Association Uh, wrote in to talk about their recent activities. So these updates you can tell are a bit of a novelty. Alumni really are just beginning to organize themselves. And again, that's owing to the 1892 convention that afforded these groups recognition in the fraternity's government. A call for discussion in previous issues about elections brought a bunch of editorials in. And when they say elections, they don't mean officers, they mean elections to membership. So today we call that membership selection. So that brought responses from Ohio State and Barnard and both advise caution and emphasize that character must be a requisite par excellence for membership. And Barnard is interesting, especially as we know that that chapter slowly dwindles and then closes, they are pointing out that they themselves have been a bit slow to embrace growth in membership. So it probably was a little bit late for them to realize that by the 1890s if they didn't work on fixing that because they would then close in 1917. So <laughs> hopefully should have realized that a little bit sooner. Um, in their letters, the chapters are writing of their spreads and all of the receptions given. so, We're really moving into more of the discussion of their social activities for all of the talk of literary advancement and chasing our high ideals in the earlier editorials, the actual chapter letters indicate those purposes uh, to a lesser extent. In the April 1893 issue, it opens with an essay on the College Settlements Association. And as Edie Mayo, our Kappa sister from Gamma Chi at George Washington University and curator emerita at the Smithsonian's Museum of American History told us, educated women were the fuel of these reform movements in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So we'll see these college settlement essays and reports on them pop up in a lot of these issues. On page 85, the alumni department has an entire article on the disposition of badges. So it's funny how in 1893, it was a hot topic and it's still a hot topic today. They're writing though because of the recent changes to the 1892 convention that includes sending in your badge to the fraternity officers um, or having someone send it upon your death. We didn't have a headquarters at the time so it went to those officers. And the suggestion is that the pins of members should actually be sent to their chapters where the members were most well-known. And it's funny because the writer mentions how any one of us would much rather have the badge of say, Mrs. Coons, the former grand first president than a new one, but Tade Coons actually lost her badge long ago, and the one we have in the archives was a gift to her when she was much older. So it's funny, that the writer um, uses the example of a member's badge that we would love to find at some point. On page 86, I was interested in an Omega Chapter alumna's reminder that while it's important that chapters not forget their alumna members, she called on inactive, or I'm sorry, they were called inactive sisters because they're not literal members of the active chapter anymore. Um, but she points out that it's the duty of the absent sisters to not allow their chapters to forget them. So they probably are having a difficult time getting undergraduate chapters to pay attention to anything outside of their own local experience, which we know happens all too often today. <laughs> yep. Page 92 talks of the second degree of which you and I could easily be members. This is another outcome of the 1892 convention and it was fairly short-lived, but it was interesting nonetheless. It was a test that you could take at convention to demonstrate your expanded knowledge of fraternity history. Participants could then wear a gold flirtily dangle with a ruby in the center if you passed that test. We have an example in the archives, and it didn't last long because it was considered too exclusionary, since only a small number from the audience at convention could participate. But man, they hit the ground running because as soon as that passed at the 1892 convention, there was an ad in this 1893 issue saying that if anyone wanted to attend the grand council session that was taking place in Chicago to be tested for the second degree, they could do so. Um, The idea is a good one. So can we ever have too much knowledge of our long and glorious history?
1: No, of course not. Um, Didn't Emily Emily Bright Burnham uh, start the the second degree?
0: Yeah. And I think there were a lot of those early luminaries who were participants. I think Kate Sharp, a lot of the former grand presidents, I'm sure, were in it as they should be. They made that history. But what I love is that little flirtily with the ruby in the center. So if I could get one of those without taking the test, even better. And then July 1893, the first article in this issue is from a college graduate who took to the stage, which apparently that was a considerably new thing for the time. So lots of women actors, but she's talking about it from a perspective of an educated woman. And I was especially interested in this one because I just watched a biography of Mae West on PBS. and. As you remember, I said that she was born in this year. And May was the first of her kind in every right: a writer, an actress, a sex symbol. In the 1920s, she was at the top of her game. So it's it just seemed like a coincidence or more than a coincidence that this is what the author is writing about at this point. And, and Mae West was just born. The writer of this piece on life on the stage, she calls it Stage Land explains passionately that it's possible for educated women to make a go of it and to do it successfully. but Then she signed it with just her initials. So she's proud of her success, but she still wants to remain somewhat anonymous. You'd think that she would put her full name and her chapter so people could go and find her. And she ends with the last line... In so short an article I have, of course, left much unsaid. I have not enlarged upon the increasing social recognition showed to successful actors, nor have I spoken as I should like of my special friends in the profession, brilliant, cultured and congenial as I found them. But at least I have confronted the vague objections of outsiders with the results of actual experience. I have presented, I think with fairness, the possibilities of a profession as yet practically untried by college women. So the chapter letters take up the bulk of this issue. And towards the end on page 184, we see a hearty welcome extended to the newest chapter, Beta Iota at Swarthmore. Sadly, that chapter closed just 41 years later in 1934, and gosh, if you read the news today, there are still issues going on with the Greek organizations at Swarthmore, so maybe it's not for the worst that we are not there. Um, Then finally, I reviewed the October 1893 issue, and of course, the very first thing printed in this issue is a notice that says The late appearance of this number of the key is due to the tardiness of certain corresponding secretaries in presenting their semi-annual reports. So there, they told them. Um, But then the actual article that opens this issue is about the World's Fair, my favorite. The Columbian Exposition in Chicago and part of that World's Fair included World's Fair Congresses, one of which was under the Department of Education. So that was the Congress of College Fraternities. So this is shortly after that first Panhellenic meeting called by Kappa and then several years before Alpha Phi would call that second Panhellenic meeting that really established the organization that we recognize today. The talks that were given sound really interesting. William Baird of the famous Baird's Manual gave the welcome, and he talked about the legal status of fraternities. So we know that fraternities are being challenged all over the place, even more so at this time. A Pi-Fi named Mrs. Blackwelder spoke about the ethical influence of the fraternities, which I would love to find a copy sometime. I bet it's in the Arrow, Pi-Fi's magazine, so I'll have to look for it or ask our pal Fran. And then your favorite Hoosier and my favorite Kappa, Tade Coons is listed as having attended. And then later pieces from alumni describe their Panhellenic week at the fair and even Kappa's headquarters in the organization room of the women's building. And not just Tade was there, but Charlotte Barrel as well. They mentioned a register that was kept for Kappa's and we have discussed this before. And the register was for Kappa's and guests to sign when visiting what they described as Kappa's Cozy Corner But I've never seen that register. And so that might be my own Kappa unicorn, the oft-discussed but never seen item in our archives. And then the issue ended with those terribly belated semi-annual reports and a few notes from the other organization's magazines. But I hate to say it, besides the reflections on the World's Fair, this issue was slim on items of interest, at least to me.
1: But you got all my unicorns. Yay,
0: you're welcome. listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by Dr. Mary Osborne and me, Kylie Smith. Thank you.